0: Thank you everyone for joining us again on As Per Usual, the podcast for practical patient engagement. So today we're going to talk about community. In our study, participants stated that there's a lack of community to practice and professional networks that foster a culture of engagement within and among the patient engagement community. This has a negative impact on patient partner recruitment and retention, diversity, inclusion, and overall uptake of patient engagement and research. They also spoke of a lack of the clarity about existing strategy for patient oriented research networks and other infrastructure to support engagement, for example, what exists, how to access roles and responsibilities, which deters from full utilization of existing capacity to support patient engagement
1: in research. So, our study participants had some great ideas about to enhance the sense of community among patient partners and academic researchers. First and foremost, it comes down to awareness again. That is, creating universal awareness about the different societies, communities of practice, leadership groups, and networks that exist within our engagement community. And then also ensuring that these different bodies are unified and interconnected so as to identify gaps in what's missing as well as to foster that larger scale sense of connectedness. Beyond community, these different societies, communities of practice, networks, etc. could have other important roles as well, such as offering centralized, easily findable, and streamlined support, training, and networking opportunities for all research partners, and helping enhance patient partner recruitment and public awareness of patient engagement in research. Our study participants also identified a need for more networking and gathering opportunities, such as an annual knowledge mobilization forum that is spearheaded by a national platform or established network, like the SPORE Summit, for example, which some of our listeners may remember. They also highlighted the importance of other regularly occurring events like workshops or webinars that give people the opportunity to interact and learn with each other and forming relationships. In designing these forums, it's important to ensure that patient partners are at the forefront, helping organize, conduct, and lead the activities so as to help continue to establish patient partners and academic researchers as equal partners in the research enterprise. We're all in this together after all. So clearly, establishing a strong sense of community among all of us engagement folks has a lot of potential benefits. And so we're very lucky to have with us today, Alice Maybe to discuss this topic in greater depth with us. Thanks so much for joining us, Alice. Would you care to introduce yourself to the listeners? Um, I'd love to, and thanks so
2: much, Anna and Bryn, for having me here to talk about this. One of my favorite topics, talking about patient engagement and talking about community and relationships, and particularly the Patient Advisors Network or pan. So let me start by introducing myself as a person, if you will. Um, There were a couple of things that drew me to becoming a patient partner in the first place. And the first was um, just the contacts with the health system, which is very often a driver. And the second was a fascination with systems and systems transformation, which I had um, a lot to do with in my work life. So I first came into contact with the healthcare system in my early 20s when I was nearly crushed in a near fatal uh, car accident. It left me with some ongoing issues, and then since then I've sp- I've been accident prone, so I've experienced structural damage. I've got a metal elbow, and I've got a ton of metal in my left um, ankle as well, which I broke just before COVID. And in all these cases, I was glued back together again, and I went to, in some cases, a little bit of rehab or whatever, but I wasn't really thoroughly connected to the primary care system. Nobody paid any attention to the long-term impacts, and there was certainly nothing to do with mental health and the mental health impacts of being um, as damaged as I was in the case of the car accident. So I thought about that and um, thought about how the system functions or doesn't, as the case may be. And then the other uh, experience I had was as a caregiver for my mother. My mother was Dutch and she lived the last 45 years of her life in the Netherlands. And when she was diagnosed with dementia, it fell to my sister and I living in Canada to uh, take care of her over there. And we had to learn the Dutch system. And I was really Interested in how well the Dutch system worked uh compared to some of the things I had seen here, so then when I retired, <clears throat> such as it is, I wanted to do something meaningful with my life, and uh, the health system was something that that was very important to me. So I approached my local hospital and became one of the first of their two first two um, patient uh, advisors as we were called in those days, and that was in twenty eleven Uh, So that's how I started my journey. In terms of my work, I have a technology background and I've designed and implemented large scale customer relationship management systems um, uh, in Canada and the United States. And through the 90s and the early 2000s, I did this and went through huge system uh, change and transformation uh, in the sales and marketing area, in particular, with people who refused to touch computers, people who got lost, lost their jobs, and the chaos that ensued, and the, the, the sort of backlashes and so on. But over 20 or 25 years, that changed, it's now done, and people are accepting of it, and in fact, embrace it, and it really changed their world dramatically. Then you look at the healthcare system, and it's been behind the rest of society in terms of going digital. I knew that was coming. I knew my background would be of value. So I decided to um, you know, really get involved in the digital health space as well. So I'm just going to briefly skip ahead to 2020. And I was privileged as a patient partner and a citizen to be a member of the 17 team expert advisory group for the Pan-Canadian Health Data Strategy which um, that was in 2020, we released the final report over a year ago now, and it became part of the policy drivers for the current collective agreements between the provinces and the federal federal government, um, which made recommendations on how to transform our health systems, in particular around accessibility and the sharing of health data. So I just put that in there because Who knew when I started in 2011 that I would have that kind of an impact, but I believe that patient partners can have that kind of an impact and we need to help each other get there. So that was that was what I wanted to say there. As a patient partner, I've been involved in pretty much every aspect of healthcare, research projects, policy, um, service delivery and so on, but with the focus of digital health and patient engagement, particularly. So because we're talking about research, I thought I would just cover off some of my involvements in the research world. In my very early years, I met a few other patient and family advisors, sort of ad hoc, and one of them recommended me to be the patient advisor on the research management committee of what was renamed the Canadian Frailty Network. And I did that for five years. I helped set research priorities, design research calls, establish evaluation criteria, and I evaluated literally hundreds of um, grant applications. So that was my introduction to the research um, project, if you will, and my window into the research system. And following on that, I became a patient partner on over 10 different research projects. And I continue doing that today on a wide range of topics. Uh, I also was um, I also trained on the faci- strategy for patient-oriented research um, curricula, so I could deliver training, and I delivered about three or four different types of curricula on that, including some of my own. And I worked very closely for a number of years with the Ontario um, Spore Support Unit. Um, I Currently still, I'm I'm working uh, since uh, 2019 uh, on the Institute Advisory Board (laughs) for the Institute of Health Services and Policy Research. And the thing that I find interesting there is there's an opportunity to see how we can make research more timely and more effective. So and then along the way, I helped to co-found PAN, which launched in 2017, essentially as a community of patient partners in Canada. So that's about me.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say like I was wondering. Speaking of PAN, um, you know, obviously had a lot of experience with various groups and communities, and have seen probably a lot of. Great experiences, but also great experiences in developing a culture of community. Um, can you highlight some of the, I guess, lessons learned or pieces of the positive culture that you
2: brought into PAN when
0: you were forming that organization?
2: Well, so perhaps the best way I can do that is a little bit tell you about the journey of what created PAN in the first place. So there were um, four of us in about late 2015, early 2016, who got together Uh, and talk, we were patient advisors, and we would get together regularly for coffee. And we thought, gee, this is so great. We're learning so much from each other, and we're so supportive of each other. Well, let's see if there's anything like that. And let's see if we can sort of join up with others across Canada. What we realized, actually, as patient and caregiver partners, is that we were really the antithesis of community. We were singletons, mostly on our own. We didn't get much of a chance to get to know each other except by chance. And our primary relationships were with the organizations or or groups that we became uh, attached to. Um, And most of us were involved in more than one way. So many of us were involved in, you know, research or with our hospitals, et cetera. And we looked at some of the the patient groups that we were familiar with, there were various ones here and there, and they were all dependent on the healthcare organization that stood them up and they were in service of the healthcare organization's agenda. We thought, well, that's great, but it doesn't serve us as patient partners. And we kept looking around for an existing organization and we didn't see anything that was um, that was the kind of thing we were looking for. So we did see, um, a number of communities of practice for patient engagement. And some of us sort of became involved with those. Um, I, I certainly did. And um, what we discovered was that the focus of these patient engagement communities of practice were on the practice of engaging patients, not on the practice of partnering as a patient. So while there was some overlaps here and there, it was not serving our purpose either, although, you know, you certainly could glean things from from these experiences. We wanted something quite different that would be, if you will, a kind of a professional organization for patient partners, I guess is the best way to put it. So um, we sort of floated the idea of creating it ourselves. And um, a couple of us were going to Vancouver for a conference uh, in 20, early 2016, February. And we got in touch through Twitter and through just, you know, beating the jungle drums with other people who were going to be in the environs at that time. And we decided to get together and talk with, the, with them and say, you know, what do you think? Do you know of anything like this? Would you like to do something like this? And that was the germ from which uh, PAN sprouted. There were 12 of us from across Canada. We met over about a period of close to nine months and we pulled together what we called the manifesto. And the manifesto was really an encapsulation of who we are, what were our principles, our goals, our values, and how did we want to go forward? And then from there, we launched the website in uh, early 2017 in English and shortly thereafter in French. We decided though that, you know, in Canada, Canada is such a wonky country. If you wanna be national, you have to start that way. You you know, I, I defy anybody to start something in Toronto and try and spread it nationally and be successful. It makes it very difficult. Um, so that's why we started the way we did. Um, it was very deliberate. Uh, so our, our objectives really were to have a community where we could get to know each other, where we could build relationships, where we could learn from each other, where we could discover what makes us more effective as a patient partner. And our second objective was to have a locus for collective wisdom, and we weren't quite sure in the early days what that meant or, or where that would go. Um, but it uh, it ended up um, it's something that we're making more of these days, uh, mostly through our consulting arm. So Penn has both a community and a consulting arm. Within the community, we have a private forum for discussion in a safe place. I mean. It isn't a safe place to talk about a disagreeable patient engagement experience when the people who have placed you in that experience are also at the table. It's very hard to be frank. And we wanted to be very clear that this was for patient partners so that we could discuss about those things um, and, and learn how to handle things that aren't working well. We also have a, an opportunity board, a kind of job board kind of thing. We have tools and resources. Um, we have um, opportunities to, to um, uh, partake of our working groups. We have three working groups, which are really designed to help us build tools and resources for ourselves. One on compensation, one on digital health, and one on patient party, par- partner safety and ethics. And uh, the other thing we provide are webinars, and we've just, we're just actually literally in the middle of piloting our very first course, which is designed by patient partners or patient partners called Foundations of Patient Partnering. So let me just touch on the consulting arm. So PAN is a social enterprise, and people often say, well, how do you fund yourself? And we fund ourselves by the work that we do as a consulting firm, if you will. And so we uh, have contracts with different um, healthcare organizations and groups, and they pay us to help them in usually the area of patient engagement. Um, We collaborate with them, and that's how we keep the doors open and the website up and so on and so forth. The consulting also helps us develop our mandate. So specifically, we've um, completed a partnership on three different um, researchy kind of products, research type project projects. The first one was when we were six months old, of all things. Um, The Change Foundation came to us and wanted to partner uh, with us. And we said, you do know we're only six months old. And they said, oh, yes. (laughs) So we did. We worked with them on their um, uh, research and examination of the market for uh, caregivers And the result of all of that work that we did led to the development of the Ontario Caregivers Organization, which is a very robust organization that is in operation here in Ontario now. Uh, We've also partnered with Audrey L'Esperance from the Centre of uh, Excellence on Partnerships with Patients and the Public uh, to help develop uh, the newly launched Learning Together, the Evaluation Framework for Patient Engagement and Research, which I'm, I think you're both familiar with because I believe that she was on your, um, uh, on your earlier podcast with the two pan leads, Carolyn Canfield and Marianne Levasseur. So that was, um, that was a very exciting partnership. The other partnership that we've just concluded is with Julia Abelson for the Canadian Patient Partner Survey work that she did. And it was the first ever real attempt to look at who we are that does this work, what makes us tick, where are we located, and so on. It was a very in-depth study, and um, PAN had a great deal to do with that. It was also led by Carolyn and Marianne, but there was a PAN team behind their, their work in all cases. So the other partnership that we have, which is ongoing and current and has been in place for now four years, is with the Centre for Digital Health Evaluation out of uh, Women's College Hospital here in Toronto, Ontario. And we have done now a total of 17 projects with them. Uh, And we've got more in the hopper. So we continue to do that work. What it's allowed us to do is to develop a slightly different model for patient engagement that includes um, a mini community of all the patient partners who are on these different projects. Um, uh, so we're about 20 or thereabouts. And we meet once a month and we share updates on the projects. That was where it started. But what's come from this is the much deeper Um, development of the relationships in the community. So it's like almost like a mini subpan, if you will. And people have learned about each other, we've developed relationships, but we also have um, learned how to be more effective as patient partners and gained a great deal more confidence in the doing of it. And we've learned subject matter expertise as well. So it's both capacity building, community building, and it was a really interesting element of that model, which we are now um, doing some work together with the uh, Center for Digital Health Evaluation to talk about the model itself. (laughs) So those are some of the things that we've done and um, we're now looking at uh, 21 opportunities for partnership. Most of which won't of course come to come to fruition, but we're hoping to uh that it will and there's one other uh, partnership that we have that's very new um c i h r approached penn and they asked us specifically not for a patient partner, but they asked us for a a pen representative on the on the uh, spoR refresh steering committee SPOR being the strategy for patient oriented research. So we have one person on that committee, but behind her sits um, a, a council that collaborates with her and uh, feeds feeds her um, information and, you know, is a bit of a, a backboard for her for ideas and so on. And we're kind of looking forward to this relationship because it's an organization to organization relationship with CIHR. And, it gives us an opportunity also to see, um, you know, to influence how patient engagement might be going forward, not only through the SPORE community, but all through, through uh, CIHR itself. So that's it. And just to sum up what I think about PAN and PAN's value, which I think is very far reaching through the relationships, the networking, the peer-to-peer learning, we have a sense of community and of belonging. And I think that's one important value for those of us who do this work. The other is that through PAN, we can share our collective insights and wisdom, and we're just still experimenting of ways we do that, partly through our consulting, but there will be other ways. And the other thing is, is that PAN in and of itself, its presence in the healthcare ecosystem really raises the profile of patient partnering in the ecosystem. So I will close my comments about PAN there. And I know I've taken a lot of time because we do want to talk about other things, but but that's the story of PAN and where we are now. And I expect it will evolve in new and wondrous ways going forward.
1: That's such an amazing story, and to me, just to see the evolution of how it was a few people together, and it's what we talk about, a few interested individuals inspired to make a difference, and then you collectively grew, and something that stands out to me as well through kind of the initial conversations we had here today about awareness how did you raise awareness from Pan, for PAN? So part of what I heard you say was that you established it as a national organization. But then how did you, because right now we're hearing that, you know, there isn't that much awareness about the different groups that are there. And so people aren't accessing them. So how did you raise awareness so that you became this powerhouse group?
2: Oh, my gosh, that is such a funny question for me, because right from the start, we had no, not enough money, we had almost no money in the beginning uh, to do any marketing or outreach or anything like that. And so we de- devoted ourselves to word of mouth. And pre-COVID, we would talk about PAN when we went to conferences and so on. And we found that we got an uptick in membership after every healthcare conference that one or another of us from the uh, starting group attended. And then, you know, it's like I told two people who told two people who told two people. It was entirely word of mouth and remains so to this day, although we're now looking at doing something uh, more in the way of of sort of outreach uh, as because we're sort of just sort of moving into a newer phase in, in our life, in our life. But I think part of it, too, was that patient partners, patient advisors have been thirsty for it. Uh, we have a website so um, a fair uh, sort of a portion of the people who have come to us and become members have just stumbled upon us on the, uh, on the internet. So there's always there's always that although there's no guarantees. I think it was there was such a need for community and that's what's driven us uh, in this in this way.
0: I think um, to follow up on that often you know I think it's recognized that there's often, and I would say it's a fake barrier to, as from the researcher perspective, that, well, you know, you know, yeah, I recognize the importance of patient partnership in my research, but, and I recognize that it's relationship, but that takes time. and I don't have time, you know, that always seems to come up, like, what, what would you, I guess, I guess, say to that, or does, does, how has PAN maybe, address some of those uh, sort of well-known challenges
2: that are out there
0: <laughs> to build to continue
2: to build community?
1: Well, I'll harken
2: back to the uh, Center for Digital Health Evaluation and our sort of mini group. The group is persistent and people on the group who are patient partners may do a project and then it's done and then they're back in the group again and they may do another project and then it's done, but they're still always part of the group if they so choose to be and most of them do. So it's led me to think deeply about that because the healthcare system, the research project and the research it research is all about projects and these are time bound. So when you have something that's time bound, it's very difficult to um, create, maintain and sustain relationships because you know, you're, you're in, you do your thing and you're out and you're done and that's it. And I guess early on in my career as a patient partner, if you will, I remember going to a meeting one time and uh, during the break, there were two women who were crying and I said, why are you crying? And they said, we've been three years on the advisory committee and now our term is up and we're done and we're losing everything, all these people that we got to know and what do we do? So that got me to thinking about, all this business of, you know, terms. Um, you know, when you have a council, you have terms and they're, you're only there for a period of time. When you have a community, there is no term. You're a member for however long you want to be a member of a community. And so I started to think differently about how we aggregate together as patient partners or as colleagues working together or those kinds of Kinds of things. But the world of healthcare is not structured to support communities in that way, because it is so much um, time-bound, episodal, and so on. Uh, It's going to take an act of will and a change of how you look at things to actually fund and sustain community. So if you're, you know, to some extent in in a hospital, for instance, if they decide to do patient engagement, they will fund and, and, and staff that exercise. That could become a community. It doesn't always, in most cases there's a pool of patient partners known to the patient engagement specialist, but nobody else. (laughs) Right. And the patient partners don't necessarily know each other. They don't necessarily get together unless it's sort of a once a year annual do, if you will. But there's no generally, I mean, I think there's probably exceptions. There's no real impetus to bringing people together as a community informally. We get to know each other over, you know, tea and biscuits, basically. And uh, that's how people get to know each other very often. It's challenging in a virtual environment, but certainly not impossible. Pan is entirely virtual and has been since the start. So it can be done.
1: That's absolutely fascinating, and something that I know I always feel guilty about, and it's something that comes up a lot as well is not only helping ensure that every team member feels engaged throughout the study when there's lulls, such as maybe when you're connecting, collecting data or I don't know, sometimes recruitment takes a while, but then you're right, when the project ends, everybody gets busy, everybody moves on. But through having this community of patient partners, they still are patient partners and they go back among their community and then they can be made aware of other opportunities or even if they're not directly partnering, they can provide feedback and be a sounding board to others. So I think through that as well, we're creating a bigger and bigger critical mass of people who are actively engaged in research and also healthcare transformation. And I think within that, that's powerful and I'd never really thought about it that way before.
2: Mm. So it's interesting. I want to pick up on two things you said. One is sort of I, I've been on a lot of these research projects. And yes, there's that sort of dead zone when everybody's knuckled down doing their analysis. And as a patient partner, you're sort of twiddling your thumbs, wondering if everybody went away or not. And maybe you might um, have a weekly um, update Um email that might just say still doing analysis (laughs) stay tuned Um, and that's fine but maybe there's an opportunity to have um, you know even a monthly just get together how are you doing what are you doing are you involved in other projects you know what do you think about you know things Uh, just um, an informal thing you know something that's maybe not even related to the work but a way of connecting as a group. So that would be one um, suggestion I would make within the confines of a research project itself. I think within research, the world of research, there are sort of groups of interests that that do exist. Um, you know, you have of course the communities that arise around um, condition specific situations, diabetes, arthritis, those sorts of things. And in those cases, there are people who do get together and know each other and, and share. But for those of us who don't have that, you know, what is there for us? Can we learn from some of those experiences and create communities for people who just um, in, get involved in system research or health policy or things like that? So I think there are opportunities to do it. The question is who?
0: right? Absolutely. And I was one of the things that you had said earlier that I, was, I wanted to touch back on is that idea of creating community. I mean, certainly you had to do it on it because it was a national level, but the idea of, of creating community in a virtual, largely a virtual environment, a virtual space, and maybe that ties into some of your work with the digital health as well and understanding some lessons learned from that. But one of the things I've often heard either in the few occasions I've had to either teach or to have meetings um, online, is that people talk, it's never the same as it is in person. And I would love to pick your brain about what is it that makes it different in person and that seems to be so generative of these rich connections in person as opposed to what we're doing now, which we're we're having a great conversation, but I I would love to be sitting across from you having a cup of tea and having those conversations. I feel like there's something there's something extra that we're missing because of that, but you, you're able to still maintain and generate the successful community.
2: So, I mean, in-person is always delightful, but you can read people's body language. You can see where people sit, where they stand, how they move. It gives you a ton of information that just the talking heads don't, you know, and so you get different experiences with people um just a small story but i became very well acquainted and indeed very good friends with somebody during covid entirely virtually and after 18 months of working very very deeply together and getting to know each other we finally met in person It was such a shock because I'm taller than she is. (laughs) And so we were sort of like, oh, you know, this is who it is. We spent the first hour and a half together being totally bemused at actually being in front of each other after being talking heads with each other for so long. Uh, Even though, like I say, we became very good friends. So there is something very special about being in person. There's no question. But some of it also that it's the it's the between times. When I've gone to meetings in person, it's the breaks. It's the washroom breaks. It's the coffee breaks. It's the lunch breaks. It's the walking down the hall when you talk to people and you get to know them and you and you learn about things and you learn about opportunities that are not part of the meeting agenda, if you will. So how do we replicate that in a virtual world right you you do that by actually allowing for informal chit chat if you will and i found with some of the relationships i've built um and on some of the work that i've done and so on sometimes we'll spend as much as half an hour talking about somebody's dog (laughs) you know because these things are important we're humans we need to know these things and then It was because we did that, that I discovered with this colleague who became a dear friend of mine, that we had a Dutch connection. (laughs) And it wasn't until the third month of our work that we spent some time chit-chatting. And she mentioned casually that she had um, lived in the Netherlands for five years. And I went, what? (laughs) And so we went from there, you know? We would never have figured that out if we had stuck to the agenda. And it allowed for, you know, not only the deepening of a personal relationship, but it allowed for the richness in the way that we work together that um, that's that's really special. And I think those opportunities, we need to make room for them. But you have to actually schedule them when you do them online. We're going to schedule having chit chat time now, you know, or you just segue into it and allow for it. It's funny as is, is you're saying that, and, you know, certainly
0: Anna and I, have we've only ever met online, and we've had some great sort of chats in that little chit-chat. We realized we actually don't know how tall the other person is until now. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true.
2: Anna. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is funny, you know, and how they walk and, you know, how people walk or how they sit and, you know, their body language. It's very important, all those things,
1: Yeah. So I think we've done a pretty good job of really highlighting many of the different benefits of community building within the patient engagement community Um, beyond even for me what I had initially thought about. And what would you say then to somebody who's feeling really inspired and is like, you know what, I would love to start a community of practice. So how do I go about it? I guess I find some friends who or colleagues that have a similar research interest to me. And then what are the next steps? What would you tell them to really help make it stick and be something that flourishes?
2: So that is a very challenging question. So there are some practical elements to that. Um, we needed some seed money to make Pan go and some of us dug into our pockets for that because you do need that. Um, you know, it costs money to incorporate, which we are. We're incorporated not for profit. Um, we needed money to create a, a website to start the ball rolling and so on. Um, so that's, that's one thing that you need. Um, the other thing you need is you need at least one person who is the driver, who is really committed to doing it and preferably more than one because it get pretty lonely if there's only one, um, Who who understands how to put wheels under things and who can listen to the community because you need to hear what the community wants and where they want to go and so on. And that's something that uh, we do as regularly as we can in PAN. We do surveys, but we also listen. And we also look at uh, the conversations that are happening on our discussion board to get a sense of what people want and where they want to go. Um, And, uh, you know, it needs to be topical and, and vital. So, And and there needs you need to know what's in it for people to be there. You know, is it just are they just going to be listening? Is that what they want? You know, because there are people there are people what you might call lurkers. Right. And any social media network will tell you that there are people who are the actively engaged. And then there are people who who just read uh, and they they sort of lurk around to see what's going on and to inform themselves. But they don't actually participate in in an active way. So,
0: looking ahead then, where would you, I guess, in your ideal world, where would you want to see patient uh, partnership communities grow or how would you see them grow?
2: Well, I guess, um, so if we take, for instance, the research world, it would be really interesting to see if there was a community of patient partners who were involved in research. It could even be sort of an offshoot of PEN, if you will, sort of a subgroup in the same way that our digital group is a sub a subgroup um, where they could sort of learn from each other, where they could formally as a group connect with um, outfits like uh, outfits that are communities of practice for patient engagement folks, because there's an intersection of interests. The interests are not identical, but there's definitely an overlap. Um, and and so, you know, that would be one thing I could see is that um you have um groups of patients attached to the different spore units, for instance. If for instance, if one were an organization and said, I want to support that, you could actually uh create a national meeting for two days where you pull all the patient partners that are involved in the in the research projects um through SPORE together and see if they want to develop a community of their own and what would that look like and where would it be housed and how would it be funded and so on and so forth. Because ongoing funding is uh, is definitely an issue. You you could create something like that that would be then, if you will, tethered to, to CIHR or the SPOR, the SPORE groups or whatever. Um, you sacrifice when you're tethered a degree of independence, but maybe that's, that's okay too. Right. As Ben, we chose to stay independent. That's okay.
1: (laughs) I'm learning so much and also thinking about things in so many different ways than I have. And That's saying a lot because I think about this stuff all the time, so thank you so much. And another thing that's really coming out for me that I hadn't realized is really we talk about the need to shift power and that in order for patient partners and academic researchers to be equal partners, they truly have to be equal partners and communities of practice, especially independent ones, but then that come together with other academic research partner groups, they have the capability to create that, which is really powerful as well. So I think moving forward, if we do want to create a future state where patient partners and academic researchers are equals, I do think these communities of practice, they will be and are integral to that.
2: I think that could be very exciting because we could imagine a community of practice of patient partners in research in Canada who uh, contribute to setting the research agenda, who identify the kind of training they need because they will know more than anybody else exactly what they need, um, who uh, set the evaluation criteria for or some of it uh, in collaboration with their research partners there is a lot that could happen to mature the whole uh, patient engagement landscape in research through the pulling together of a community of practice for patient partners in research there's no doubt in my mind about that and who knows once they get together what else they would cook up that would be useful
1: I was even thinking back to, um, we did a survey as the first step of this study of academic researchers and patient partners engaged in spore funded research. And we had a heck of a time identifying patient partners and we had to go through the academic researchers. And then we ended up just kind of trying social media as well. So even things like that, then you could go to this organization that could have their own registry and just help you that way as well. So then again, it's taking that, you have to ask an academic researcher to identify other patient partners. Well, now patient partners, you can find them directly because they're legitimate researchers like academic researchers as well.
2: Right. That's an enormous plus. The other thing is, is that very often new patient partners or newish patient partners will approach me and any one of my colleagues saying, how do I get involved in research? What do I say? (laughs) You know, where do I point them? You know, um, I've had very little luck or they have had very little luck being pointed to the spore units themselves, I'm afraid to say. So that that being part of a community like that, where opportunities are brought to the community for partnership uh, on projects would be very exciting. And it would, you know, like basically pan-structured like that and could function as that, but we are not just for research.
1: So then um, a last question before Bryn asks our wrap-up one is, so I guess in order to be a member of PAN, you obviously have to be a patient partner. So my question is two part. One is membership open to any patient partner, and then for researchers like me who now think your organization is the coolest thing in the world, is it a thing where we can reach out and make you aware of opportunities, or how does one connect basically with your network, whether you're a patient or a researcher?
2: That's another wonderful question and I kind of skipped over it when I was talking about PAN. So for a patient partner or somebody who's interested in becoming a patient partner, if they go to our website, there's um, a join button and they can fill out a request for membership. Membership is free. That's one of the reasons why we're happy to do the um, the consulting business, because then we can make sure that it's equitable and that people of, um, you know, who have um, difficult means can still join and not be penalized for not being uh, economically robust. So that's um, that's how patient partners would would join us. Um, The. Researchers like yourself or anybody in any part of the the health system who is looking for a patient partner can also go onto our website. We have another form there that's um, uh, posting for posting opportunities. And you just fill out the form with all the contact information. There's a number of fields that you need to fill out and um, post it to the uh, community. And then if anybody's interested and they see this, they will respond. (laughs) That's basically how it works.
0: That's great. And I guess we'll, we'll make sure we have all that information on the, uh, on the website, on Substack as well, so that folks can have that uh, quick link to that. Um, Before we wrap up though, was there anything that uh, you want to make sure that our listeners hear about or learn about uh, the work that you're doing and any of the many projects that you have in irons (laughs) in the fire? So I,
2: I, I think I've covered most of it really. Um, I think, you know, uh, I just want to quickly touch on the capacity building piece, because a lot of it is peer learning and um, community allows for peer learning. So that's another important factor. We all know from our colleagues, when we're on researchers on a research team, you learn right? You learn from people and uh, you know who to go to for advice and so on. That's true for patient partners, too, if they're given the opportunity to be together and to know who, who each other is. So, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's been
0: really interesting. My thank goodness. You. Our pleasure, Lisa, and thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to share about all the wonderful work you're doing. Um, we both really appreciate it and you know, moving forward, I think for folks, is um, you know, they can certainly check out the, uh, the PAN website, and we'll have all the links and resources that um, you share with us on the Substack. Um, that's where you can also find, um, if you're new to the podcast, that's where you can find the transcript of today's uh, episode. But you can also find the links to Apple and Spotify where you can listen. And you can also find the YouTube link because uh, we like to have this uh, as a video. With uh, with closed captioning as well. So whichever way you'd like to take in your podcasting information, we have that available. So if folks want to also reach out, you can reach out to Anna at Anna.asperusual at gmail.com or myself, Bryn.asperusual at gmail.com. So thank you once again, Elise, for a wonderful conversation today. And uh, I think together we can all keep moving forward and making patient engagement the standard in researcher as per usual. So Thank you very much.